You know, when you, when you think about the idea of a kingdom, you know, there have been a lot of great and powerful kingdoms um, over the history of this world. I, I mean, I think about the Mongol Empire from the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, that was actually the largest contiguous empire. It covered 22% of the Earth's surface was under there. Reign, huge empire, uh, but I wasn't actually the, the greatest one. There was the um, the British Empire actually, in the probably the 17th, 16th, 17th century until the earliest early 20th century, they had a full 25 percent of the world's population under the Union Jack. And th- there's the Ottoman Empire, which was the longest running empire. They lasted from the 12th century to the to really the early part of the of the 20th century, ending in modern-day Turkey. At one point, in the 16th and 17th centuries, it spanned three continents. These are great empires. And, and now I've been speaking about the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Russian Empire, and many others. But what's interesting is all these empires have one thing in common. They do not exist anymore in the form that they once were. They once were proud and mighty, but now they are not. Jesus has come to bring an empire that will outshine, outlast, outglorify them all. And uh, that's why he was come. We look at this series of why did Jesus come. And one of the reasons, as Jack mentioned, you know, it was the bearing of wrath and the giving of forgiveness that we saw in Hebrews 2 and Galatians 4, that adoption and spirit. So now we can cry, Abba, Father. But in our passage today in Luke 4, he's come to bring a kingdom, a good and great and glorious kingdom. So if you turn with me there in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 44, and we're going to look at this rather complicated idea of what kingdom uh, did he come to bring. So Luke 4, and I'll just read four verses, two, uh, three verses, excuse me. These are really a summation, by the way. I would encourage you later today to read all of chapter 4, because this really kind of summarizes his um, beginning ministry in Galilee. So he says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So, so what Luke is doing is he's saying, hey, this is a summary, not just of what Jesus had been doing, but it kind of looks forward So it's showing us, if you will, the main direction of the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. And that can be summed up in this, that he came to bring a kingdom. Really, that's the theme of the Bible. But but Jesus is picking up this theme and he's saying, I have come to bring about a kingdom. Now, there's some things I want to speak to you about this kingdom. First, I want to talk about the nature of what kingdom he came to bring. And then I want to look at how do we respond to the kingdom? Because, you know, if there is a kingdom coming to the shores of America, we're forced to deal with it. It demands a response. We can't just be ambivalent to such an invasion. And so we're going to find that out as well towards the back end of the sermon. So first, the nature of this kingdom. What is it about this kingdom? Well, we're going to see here that first, the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, this is why we're celebrating Christmas, we're thankful for his kingdom. It's first a kingdom of humility and one of dependence. I mean, look at the first verse. It says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Now, 
Um, we don't know much from that other than the implication is he left early and he went into that desolate or what can be translated wilderness. Mark's gospel in chapter 1 verses 35 to 39 is a, a parallel passage to this and describes that he went out really early like oh dark 30 and he's going out into the wilderness and he's going out to pray. He's going out to pray. Now what's interesting is here he's about to launch a kingdom and he goes out and prays. Now, the night before, he had been very busy. If you were to look in your Bibles at verses 40 and 41, we see it says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them, and he healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. So clearly he was doing this, what we would consider the work of ministry, the night before. But then he goes out and prays. and You would think he'd continue the light show. You'd think he'd keep up all the miracles. That, that's the, the thing that draws the crowds. And yet we see Jesus go out to seek his Father. He, he went out to, to find the grace of God. He went out to, to pray, to, to remember his mission. He's going out there for the kingdom. Now, uh, most of us think that seems to be a waste of time. At least the people in the crowd did. Uh, because they, it says, went out to seek him. And the Greek word is they went out to hunt for him. Well, you have to hunt. He left in the morning, so you wouldn't have seen him. He's out in the wilderness, so you wouldn't have known where he was going. And so they're looking all over. They're hunting for him. In fact, it says that they tried to prevent him from going. That makes sense, too. I mean, here you have a bunch of people. They had withered limbs that were stored, eyes that were blind. Now they're seeing. Ears that were stopped. Now they're hearing. Paralytics who had to be carried everywhere. Now they're walking and they're running. People that were sick are now healed. That's the great work of ministry. And so we're thinking, we can't let this guy go. We have to keep him here. And yet Jesus says to them, no, I must go to other towns as well. But what he does first is he retires to prayer. Now, just at a minimum, let me just stop for a minute and just say that this is a good challenge to the church. The Christian sees prayer as fundamental to the advancement of God's kingdom. The Christian does. Now, when you look at your lives, do you see do you place do you place importance and do you value prayer as fundamental to the kingdom? I, I, I am concerned that many of us fall into the trap that the disciples did. Remember when Jesus was on his ministry, he's preaching this kingdom, and a bunch of children come up to Jesus. And they say, no, no, they shoo him away. I mean, it makes sense to us. Again, why would children come? How could they help us? We're trying to advance a kingdom. We're trying to get things in place for God to reign. And so what are these kids going to do? They're going to do nothing. They're going to be a distraction. They aren't in positions of importance or power or authority. They can't advance what we're trying to do. And Jesus, of course, rebukes the disciples and says, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. This is a different kingdom. This is a kingdom that operates on the power of prayer. Do you, do you, do you realize the intimate relationship between the advancement of the kingdom through this church and prayer? And if so, what is the relationship in your own life? Do you value prayer? Do you pray? I mean, it's, it's a critical question. If Jesus, the very Son of God, fully God, fully man, if he turns to and makes a habit of seeking his Father in prayer before doing any ministry, I, I would think at a minimum, it would just be bold arrogance to say that we don't need that. And, and, and so, you know, I'm asking you to consider, even as you look forward to the next year, what is the role of prayer in the ministry that you're involved in? What is the role of prayer in your life? What is the role of prayer in you seeking to display the kingdom to your children as mothers and fathers? 
What about in the workplace? You want to be more missional in the workplace. What is the role of prayer in that? Are we lifting up? Are we engaging God over the hearts and souls of these people? It's very, very important. We're going to be teaching on prayer in the first couple um, weeks in January, and I don't want to th- excuse me. I don't want you thinking that that we need to start a committee in prayer. I, I want us to begin thinking that these things are part and parcel of both the individual but collectively the church. That, that we as a people are finding ourselves more drawn, not we've got to pray, that's something Christians do, but we see it as a need for the kingdom to move. We see that God has ordained prayer as a means to advance his name to the nations, and will we be moved to prayer, not because you're guilted over my questions, but because you truly sense, what can I do apart from it? How can I plan? How can I, how can I be confident that God is going to use me when I don't show my dependence? In fact, one author said that prayer, the degree of our prayer, is simply advertising the dependence that we have on God. So that's the first note in this kingdom. This kingdom, you'd think Jesus would be busy, busy, busy about doing ministry to get the kingdom out, and yet he finds time for and finds it necessary to pray. Second thing about this kingdom that I'd like to draw your mind to is that it is actually was the fulfillment of a promise made by God long ago. This kingdom, look what Jesus says. He says, for this purpose I was sent to preach this good news of the kingdom. So Jesus sees himself on a mission from God, that God had sent Jesus to bring about this kingdom. Now, before I explain the kingdom, let me challenge us a little bit in terms of our modern-day view of God's kingdom. I think in our culture today, we like to boil things down. We like to shrink-wrap them into little bite-sized pieces, little sound bites. We want to make the gospel of this kingdom very understandable, so we reduce it. We make it very simple. We want to be able to have everybody walk in the doors of this church and immediately understand the gospel. And so we ought to know the gospel in such a way that I can explain it in two minutes and have people understand what the gospel is. Well, I would challenge that. I don't know how we can do that. I, as I quoted William Willimon, a, a former Duke uh, chaplain, his dean of the chapel, he said you can't do that with baseball, let alone the gospel. That the gospel is otherworldly, and to just shrink wrap the gospel into just a few neat components, as we have done, is to really change the nature of the gospel. Now, I don't doubt the preachers who want to reduce the gospel. I don't doubt their intentions, but I do doubt the effectiveness of reducing the gospel. In other words, so what we've often heard in evangelical churches is simply this. Listen, that God loves you, and that We've screwed things up, and we need God to go to heaven. So ask Jesus in your heart, and you're going to be assured of salvation. That's the gospel. And I would say that that would be unhealthy reduction of the profound nature of the gospel. I know I'm crossing a lot of lines here, probably with many of you, but, but I, I would say that it is, it is an over-reduction. And I say that because little to nothing is said of man's utter sinfulness. Little to nothing is said of God's immense glory and his kingdom. Little to nothing is said of this radical call to repentance that Jesus seems to make about hating your father and mother and leaving the dead to bury their dead. Little is said about the role of the church as integral in in bringing forth maturing faith in the lives of the saints. 
I mean, it drops out major blocks of truth. It provides us false assurance. And so we think we're in the kingdom because we've had some formulaic prayer that we've uttered. And I would just say, I think the results are in, and the church is anemic. And Michael Horton is a modern-day scholar, and he says this about the state of Christianity after decades of decisionism and this kind of shrink-wrap gospel that we've sold. He says this, Gallup and Barna has handed us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Why? Because I think we've fumbled the gospel. We've fumbled this idea of a kingdom. In fact, George Barner writes in Christianity Today, he has decried, he says, our costless faith. He says, we've made it too easy to be born again. Slick evangelical marketeers have offered eternal salvation as a free gift if you just say yes to a simple formula. God loves you. Humankind blew the relationship. But he has a plan for your life. Just saying the magic words triggers the contract. He says, what's the response been? Boomers, that is that age group up to uh, birth date of 1964, boomers studied the offer. They realized it was a no-lose proposition. Eternal security at nothing down. No future payments, just simple verbal assent. The deal specified nothing about life change. Why not accept a no-cost fire insurance policy? The result, born-again people living just like everybody else. So the kingdom is much more than that. To invite, when Jesus came to declare a kingdom, he wasn't just looking to try to get us out of the fires of hell. Jesus was introducing God's reign. That's what the word kingdom means. God is reigning over his creation. He's introducing something absolutely profound. And if you bear with me for just a minute, I want to try to walk through a little bit of the Old Testament history because you can't understand the gospel in the New Testament apart from understanding God's authority and reign in the Old Testament. So if we go back to Genesis 1, God's reign, this idea of kingdom, I want you to think not realm, I want you to think reign, authority, power, sovereignty. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before God created. God has created all things. He's sovereign over all things. He's created all things. Everything owes their life, allegiance, everything to him. So God has established that. He makes this visual when he creates man and woman and places them in his kingdom to live under his rule, to live under his word. They were the first members of God's kingdom outside of creation. Now, of course, the man and the woman were called to live under his rule, and they were called to live for his glory and live by his word, and yet they frustrated his reign by crossing, running cosmic treason with God, wanting to do their own thing, running by their own law. We see that right in chapter 3 of Genesis. But as you see the pages of Genesis kind of float by, you realize that God's mercy is greater than our sin. And so he elects a man named Abraham. And and his descendants, God makes promises to them. He says that I'm going to gather you as a people. I'm going to give you a land in which you can bless the nations as you represent my glory, as you live under my reign. It's like a picture of this eternal kingdom that's coming. And so God then shows his power by gathering the people in the Exodus. He draws them out. And he says, see, the promises are coming true. And he delivers them 
gathers them as a people, brings them to Sinai, reintroduces himself to them, if you will, by giving them the law, saying this is how you're to live now, under my authority. This is how a people look in the kingdom of God. And so he gave them the law, and he led them to the land. Even a government was formed with a king being appointed. The king, the Davidic king, was to represent God. Again, God keeps giving the world, on the world stage, this picture. This is what God's kingdom looks like. Has a king representing God, a people submitting to the king. This is what the kingdom of God was to be like. But we know through the pages of the Old Testament that men rebelled. Kings rebelled. They went their own ways. They sinned. So what did God do? He brought judgment. He brought division. And he brought exile upon a people. But what you find as you read through the Old Testament is the prophets begin increasing the, the, the uh, loudness of their voice and they're calling out a new exodus. There's a new exodus that's needed. And there is a new king that's needed, a new Davidic king. And there needs to be a new Jerusalem. And there needs to be really a new kingdom is what they're calling for. You see, we need a new law, no longer on tablets of stone, but now it has to be written on the heart. You see it in Jeremiah and Isaiah. And it begins just building up momentum through the prophets. So the Old Testament prophets were starting to say, no, what we need is a Messiah, a Messiah who will come and bring reality to the picture that Israel was to be but was not. So that sets the backdrop for now Jesus standing on the scene and saying this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So how can we understand that apart from all the history of God picturing the kingdom, the kingdom failing, but the prophets speaking about we need a new exodus, a new Jerusalem, we need a new king, we need a new law upon our hearts. And so then Jesus steps on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus has come to bring in final form the kingdom of God. No longer shadows and pictures, temples and and sacrificial systems. Those were all shadows. Even the Sabbath was just a shadow of things to come. But now the real has come in Christ. And so he's come to bring this kingdom. And here's how he's brought it, by preaching that it's come. And then he exercises, excuse me, he exercises miracles to begin to display the reality of the kingdom. Folks, when you go through chapter 4 today, you'll see him exercising demons. You'll see him healing the sick. You'll see him raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, causing the deaf to hear, causing the blind to see. Why? To show a picture of the kingdom that he will ultimately bring. The miracles, we love miracles, but miracles are not an end in themselves. Every person healed died. Miracles have a short shelf life. They're meant to show this is the kind of kingdom that God is bringing. And this is the type of king. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over the winds and the waters. He has authority even over death itself. This is the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. And this kingdom is going to be established in his own life and his death and his resurrection. Now this, we struggle with this sometimes. Even John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called the greatest man on earth. You realize that? And yet he tripped over this idea of Jesus bringing this kingdom in in such an undynamic way. In fact, John the Baptist, when he was in prison, which blew his mind. Why? Because I'm here as a forerunner for the Messiah. The Messiah's come. What am I doing in prison? We should be establishing a kingdom. We should be t- throwing Herod out and establishing the reign of God right now. 
And so he sends disciples to Jesus when he's in prison, and he says this, are you really the one? And here's what Jesus said to him. Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive the sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news of the kingdom preached to them. Out of Isaiah, he just says, I'm the one bringing the kingdom. Now, friends, the Christian here doesn't look for utopia in this world. We don't look for society to become better by electing a different party in the White House, uh, new laws established, you know, f- health breakthroughs. We don't look for a utopia in this world. You know, the, the, the tragedy of Connecticut, really, it, it, it's a horrific tragedy, and uh, it, it causes all of us just to pause and recognize the brokenness of our society. But notice the response of people in authority. What are the first things that started coming out of people's mouths? Gun laws. We've got to have better medical screening. We have to have better security systems in place. When are we going to get it? This world, this kingdom of men is broken. We need this kingdom. We need God to come. We're thankful that Christ has come to establish it. We're longing for it. We are a people who are anticipating a kingdom that is glorious. It doesn't take us out of action in this life. In fact, it gives us motivation to be involved in our culture and in our world. But we're involved in our culture because we know one is coming, a kingdom that's great and mighty. So put away hopes that new laws or, 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 or new medical screening or new security systems, you know, trying to prevent tragedy and terrorism from happening is an illusion as long as we're in flesh and blood. But we are people of great joy because of the kingdom to which we belong. So, so that's the second truth. This kingdom was long promised. Jesus is just coming to inaugurate it. It is hidden in many ways and it is spiritual, but it is growing. And as Jack said one day, and we look forward to that day, I trust you do. Every Christmas is a reminder that he came to establish it. He's going to come to complete it. And on that, we have great joy and hope. But thirdly, notice the unique thing about this kingdom. It is to be advanced by all means, but the primary one is preaching. Now, that seems kind of funny because, you know, when you think of preachers, that's a kind of a pejorative term, is it not? It's kind of used for loudmouth, outspoken, ignorant person, is a preacher. And yet Jesus is just that. He's come as a preacher. He says, this is why I was sent. In fact, that little Greek word, I must, it implies a divine necessity. It will not come apart from preaching. Those of you who hate preaching, no. It won't come apart from preaching, is what Jesus says, that God has ordained preaching as the primary means to advance his kingdom to the corners of the earth. Now, preaching, when we speak about that term, it isn't just public preaching from the pulpit. It does surely include that. But there's also the private preaching that you do. You know, Paul speaks about it in Acts 20, that he preached publicly and he preached house to house. When you guys are engaging each other in the things of God, you're preaching to one another. When you sing the songs that you sing to one another here, and, and you're proclaiming the truth of Christ, you're preaching to one another. So there's all kinds of forms of preaching that we're called engaging, but this is how it's going to happen. So I would ask you this, that, that the preacher is often distracted in doing many good things, many ministerial things. 
but primary should be the preaching. We, we, we see this in Acts chapter 6. He is to be preaching and he is to be praying. In fact, this is what uh, J.C. Ryle commented on this. He's that 19th century uh, British Anglican, wonderful man of God, very easy to read. He says, let us beware of despising preaching. In every age the church, in every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument for the awakening of sinners and the edifying of saints. The days where there has been little or no preaching have been days when there have been little or no good done in the church. Let us hear sermons in a prayerful, reverent frame of mind and remember that they are the principal engines which Christ himself employed when he was upon earth. Not least, let us pray daily for a continual supply of faithful preachers of God's word. According to the state of the pulpit, will always be the state of a congregation and of a church. So you have to ask yourself, as, as the Christian here values preaching, do you value preaching? Do you struggle with preaching? I mean, what level of importance do you place upon it? Is it something you endure? Is it something that you're hungry and you look forward to? Uh, we, we look back at, at classics like Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, London preacher in the mid-19th century, and we're thinking, well, if he was preaching, Boy, would we be excited about it. But listen to what he says about that. He says this, he says, I have had great success in soul winning, but I've never taken any credit for it, for I feel that I preach under great advantages. The people come with an intense desire to hear and with an expectation of getting a blessing. When a congregation expects nothing, it generally finds nothing, even in the best of preachers. But when they are prepared to make much of what they hear, they usually get what they come for. Our work is, no doubt, greatly affected for good or evil by the condition of the congregation. Now, we don't think that way. We think, Tom, I hope you've prepared well. And that is a legitimate expectation for you to have. But I have the expectation, I hope you've prepared well. I hope you've come. I hope you're hungry. I hope you've read the text before you've come here. I hope you've been praying. I mean, if you're not praying, it's greatly challenging to take these spiritual truths when you've been bathed in secularism all week and have them seem vital and exciting and life-changing. So it is a dance that we dance together in this kingdom that you will be in many ways as prepared as I am and I will be in many ways as good and prepared as you are. So it's both of us together in this. We're rowing together. One isn't going to row this boat. So I want to encourage you. The Christian understands this. They come hungry. They come ready. They know that life is going to be changed through the word of God. And the primary means of grace of this word of God is through the public declaration of the word and how you come. So consider that. Fourth thing about this kingdom, it's not just a dependent kingdom or it comes in what seems to be a humility and it's, it's this promise of God. And thirdly, it comes through preaching, but it also comes for all the people. Notice that Jesus says, I have come and I must preach the good news of the kingdom to all people. Now listen, this was a fairly new idea uh, to the Jew of the day, listening to Jesus. In fact, if you go back in chapter 4, you'll notice that the first time Jesus preaches, he preaches to his hometown crowd. You'd think they'd be in his corner in Nazareth. And he preaches, and they're scratching their heads saying, isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the guy that we saw as a little snot-nosed kid running around, and they're beginning to question him. But, but here's what happens. When he looks at them and he says, you're going to say to me, do this miracle and this miracle, 
And, uh, and Jesus begins to point out to them their hardness of heart. And he says, you know what? With Elijah and with Elisha, God didn't move to Israel. He moved to the Gentiles, saying that this gospel of the kingdom is for all people. That's when they wanted to throw him out. See, the Jewish of the day was very ethnocentric. They were very much, it's for the Jews. Jesus is saying, this gospel is for all the peoples. So I love having Africans here and folks of different ethnicity because it displays a picture of what we have coming for us in that kingdom. The gospel is for all people, not just certain ethnicity, not just a certain group of people, but for all the people. In fact, it begs us to be, as we were saying in this uh, Bible study today, it begs us to be missional. We are thinking beyond the the myopic view of North Raleigh. You know, I don't know if you need to put a, a, a picture of the world, a world map on your wall, or if you need to make as a, as a regular part of your daily devotions, I'm going to pray for a different country every day. But, but it, the Christian is concerned for the world, not just for my family and my children and my job and my retirement. The Christian is concerned for all people. In fact, your concern is to be moved at a minimum of prayer, a, a consideration of how can I be involved in the various levels that that may look even to some of you leaving comfort and family and home to go over to fulfill this idea. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that the end will not come until the gospel is preached to the ends of the world. So this is, this is a real deal here, that the gospel came, and it came Christ, he preached it to his people, the disciples preach it. In fact, in John 20, 21 is where he says that, so I have been sent, so I send you. So this gospel is for all peoples and all times. So that's the declaration of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to inaugurate. It was a kingdom that was, it came with humility. It, it came as a fulfillment of God's promise made long ago. This kingdom is going to be primarily moved through preaching and teaching, and it's for all the people. So what do we do with this? What are you going to do with this? How do you respond to it? I mean, if an army lands on your shore, what are we going to do with it? Ambivalence is no answer. Ambivalence is just a mild form of rejection. That's all it is. The scriptures call us to repent and believe. That, that's, that's what Mark's gospel records. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. There's this call for repentance. This idea, if I understand that God's kingdom has now come, am I living in the kingdom? Am, am I living under his reign? Am I living obedient to him? Now, all of us, at one point or another, we're all born outside the reign. We're all living in disobedience to his reign. None of us naturally are drawn to want to obey God and follow God. And so that's the call for repentance. Every man and woman and child to enter the kingdom must repent. What do we repent of? We're repenting of just that. We've lived for our own kingdoms. We've lived for ourselves. We have not lived for the kingdom of God. We haven't obeyed God. We haven't walked in joy-filled obedience to the one who's created all things. And so we're called to repent of those things. And when I say repent, I mean this. I don't mean that we're sorry that some people are hurt over my sins. To repent fundamentally begins with me recognizing that against Almighty Creator God who gives me life and breath, I have sinned and been in cosmic treason with. I've rebelled against him. I've disobeyed him. I have flaunted him. I've high-handed defied him. That's what it means. I recognize that. Second, repentance involves this idea of sorrow. That that I see the character of God. He's a good God. He's kind. He's given me life. He's sustained my life to this point. And I have never even 
thanked him for it. So there's a sense of sorrow over defying such a gracious and good and powerful God. But then it moves towards change. There has to be a change. That, that if we repent, the idea of re- the word repentance really means to turn. The whole idea is life looks different. And we begin to make reparations of those who, have, who we have sinned against. I mean, Zacchaeus in Luke 19 is a classic example. He repents of his sin, and what does he do? He goes and pays back everybody he defrauded. It's the evidence of the repentance is the outward change, the confession of sin, the reconciliation of broken relationships. That's the evidence of repentance. So we're called to repent and believe that Jesus has, in fact, brought this kingdom and established it in his own blood and in his own resurrection. So we're called to repent. Now listen, everybody needs to repent. We think, well, the tax collectors, sinners, they definitely need to repent. And here's the great news about the gospel. The gospel is for them. I I speak with many people who still feel as if their sins are greater than God's ability to bring forgiveness through the merits of Christ. They look at their sins and they look at their life and they are so overwhelmed with the nature and the darkness of their sins that they don't think Jesus has come for them. And if if that is you here today, I I just want to encourage you, please, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice and paying the penalty for your sins is far greater. You cannot outsend the saving work of Jesus Christ. Think about the arrogance of just that idea for a minute. Somehow, I'm going to be able to outsend the God-man who came to die for me. So, so the, the sinner appeals to God and finds mercy and grace. If that, you know, those of you who have struggled with this, look to Christ. His cross was sufficient for you. In fact, I think about this, I read this blog, and I thought it was really beautiful for the wounded person who sometimes struggles to turn to Christ in repentance. And here's what this man wrote. He says, Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer and the thought of another Christmas seems an impossible dream. Christmas is for smokers who cannot seem to quit even in the face of a death sentence. Christmas is for prostitutes, adulterers, porn stars, who long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for college students who are sitting in the midst of family and already cannot wait to get out for another drink. Christmas is for those who traffic in failed dreams. It's for those who have squandered the family name and fortune. Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. Christmas is for all of us. It's an idea of repentance and coming to God, knowing that we'll find mercy and grace. So Christmas is for the sinner and the broken. But Christmas is also for the religious. You know, many of us are quite religious. We have lives that really have much piety in them. And we've actually become quite confident in in how much of the Bible we know and the works that we do and the ministries that we perform. And it's actually become a bit of confidence based upon our lives. And, And I would call you to repent of your religion. Repent of your confidence in yourself. Repent of what God's done in your life as, as somehow meaning you're over and above the rest of the folks, repent of your religion. I, I mean, we, we all need to repent and, and come before God and say, I, I, I need to be drawn into this kingdom by the work of Christ and Christ alone. But, but not just repentance. We respond to this kingdom for those who are Christian with rejoicing. I, I, Christmas is a time of celebration. The celebration isn't over necessarily the family that we get to hang around or the gifts that we get although those things may be very sweet and lovely. 
our point of celebrating Christmas in this church is because Christ has come to establish a kingdom to which we can now go. Our kingdom is worthy of rejoicing over. Listen, death has been defeated in the resurrection of Christ. Your guilt and shame has been overcome by forgiveness. Your struggle with sin has been overcome by the presence of God's spirit. I mean, your fear of acceptance has been overcome by God himself accepting you. Your fear of meaninglessness and futility of life has given way to purpose and meaning because you're part of a kingdom. I mean, the kingdom of God is worthy of rejoicing over. To consider the kingdom of God as just this box of jewels again, all the pleasures and promises that God has assured to us. It's a cause for celebration that will extend beyond the wrapping paper and when your gifts break. And, and then thirdly, I would say not just repenting and not just rejoicing, but also reflecting. You know, I would call you in this Christmas season to consider this. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to bring the kingdom. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to build the kingdom. We're only called to herald the kingdom. We are just simply messengers. We're ambassadors given a message that is called to go forth to the nations. So I would encourage you in this Christmas season that we reflect the kingdom to which we belong by speaking about the kingdom, but by prayerfully considering. This is a great season to move from conversations over troubles because really holidays are a difficult time for most people. It's a time of, of heightened loneliness, of disappointment due to expectations with our families that don't come true. It's a time of great despair over those that we've lost that we won't see. It's a time of real thinking and consideration of things beyond just the wrapping paper and the tinsel. And it's a time for us who love this kingdom to reflect this kingdom by speaking about it, engaging people in it. I wish you were at the Bible study. The elders gave great words to, we don't, we don't necessarily need a, a three-step process. We just need to speak of the love that we have for the one that has come to save us. That's really what heralding is. It's speaking, I can talk about Carol all day long. I'm so uh, deeply thankful to God for her and her gifts and her strengths and her care for me and her love and her willingness to sacrifice. I can sit up here and speak about her for a while, it, born out of love for her, speaking to the truth about her character. Well, that's what we do about Christ, but even more so. So let's take a few minutes in terms of prayer and let's pray, and I would encourage you in a group this size and room this full, pray loudly and pray briefly. And the reason I encourage a brief form of prayer is because others want to join with you. And I would, I would encourage you as well that this is a time of corporate prayer. So we're not just speaking about our individual needs, although they may be present and worthy of prayer. In, in this time of corporate prayer, let's advance Asking God in great dependence over the nature of our church. And, and are, we a, are we a people who, who embrace and enjoy the humility of this kingdom? The promise fulfilled, the value of, of the word being broken among our lives, and, um, and then our love for the nation. So let's pray for that, that we might respond rightly to Christmas. And let me start, and then Ray is going to close us in just a few moments.